up, wake up, wake up. From Jerusalem, Israel, this is From the Midwest to the Middle East, the podcast that explores everything new in U.S. and Israeli economy. Here's your host, Philip Stein. I'm really pleased to be having this podcast today. First of all, this episode is brought to you by Philip Stein and Associates, the largest U.S. CPA firm in Israel, providing U.S. tax services to Israelis, Americans, corporations, startups, and anyone else needing them. Hi, it's Tzipora, General Manager here at Philip Stein and Associates. Today's guest I'm excited to introduce. We are turning tables and I will be having a personal and candid conversation with Philip Stein himself. This will be a chance to interview him on the 40th anniversary and journey of Philip Stein and Associates. He founded the company in 1979 and I feel very lucky and proud to be a part of it for so many years. Being his daughter as well as working together has taught me so much and is a true privilege. 40 years is an amazing milestone. So going back to March 27, 1979, where were you and what was happening that year? Okay, first of all, hi. It's hard to believe 40 years has passed. And I'm very excited and privileged to have, be having this conversation with you as my general manager and as my oldest daughter. If I go back in the time tunnel, March 27, 1979, I actually had a, a, a practice that I was operating out of Chicago. Uh, it was on uh, Lincoln Avenue, right down the street from the Biograph Theater, which was very famous uh, because one of the well-known gangsters of the Roaring Twenties, a man named John Dillinger, was shot outside of that theater. It was right a few stores away from our office. Um, and basically, on March 26, 1979, that was when the Camp David Accord was assigned. And in the pre-internet, very limited news, you know, uh, TV news and radio news, you really had to get your news from newspapers. So I bought the newspaper on March 27th, opened it up. The front page was about the Camp David Accords. And as I read the article, I noticed that the United States government had agreed to build and finance two air bases that Israel was going to give up in the Sinai Desert back to Egypt. And all the employees were going to be, the management team was going to be American. And I saw an opportunity to service that population. And I started working on the idea as I was wrapping up my first tax season as an independent uh, just two weeks before April 15th. Okay, we'll get to more of that okay. history you know, in a little bit. So you're a very creative person. And the way you think and come up with new ideas is so unique and inspiring to me. When did you know that this was the path you wanted to take? And how do you feel your creativity contributes to what you do? Um, the path, I'd say the path I took was, was based on several things. As I mentioned before, as a very young person, I decided to go off on my own. Uh, I left the security of uh, an employment in a large accounting firm, which is where I started, one of the predecessors of Ernst & Young, uh, coming from a family whose parents were, particularly my father, born and basically grew up during the Depression era. It was very much going against his sort of secure path in life, that was to get a job and not worry. So I sort of broke from him. Uh, I had a maternal grandfather who was in business for himself who I worked for as a kid. I very much liked 
seeing how one does business or has one has one owns business and i just sort of was attracted to the freedom of that for better or worse with all its uh, risk but rewards and that's what took me the create to creative side um, i think that just was something that developed in me i wasn't the best student so i had to find sort of creative ways to to learn the material present the material be ready for class deal with the situations that came up uh, i just found that using unconventional means were were better suited to me okay I know the name of this podcast channel is From the Midwest to the Mideast. So you talked a little bit about growing up in Chicago and now living in Jerusalem. Tell me a little bit about the connection between the two. Well, I grew up in Chicago and I'm very sort of proud that I grew up on the south side of Chicago in a, in a very interesting neighborhood during a very interesting time. During the 60s, there was a lot of racial turbulence, societal turbulence, uh, The hippies came along, the Beatles came along. There was a lot of changes that I experienced. And growing up in that neighborhood in those years, kids were given a lot of freedom. Sometimes my wife says to me when I tell her about some stories, someplace I was going downtown by myself at age nine or ten, and she always says, "Where was your mother?" And as you know, there were no cell phones in those days. So having that freedom at a young age, might very well parallel that if you ever read the book Startup Nation, mm-hmm. they talk about why are Israelis so successful with startups, and they point to the freedom and the responsibility they're given in the army when they're at the end of their teen years or early 20s. And I think for me that I just had a lot of freedom to operate and move around and observe and listen, and I was blessed with a very good memory. So all of those things sort of allowed me to take that Midwest or Chicago, south side of Chicago experience, and then take it with me all these years into different situations. And, and, and I really believe that those things that I learned as a young person, I was able to enhance in this very special place that we live in called Israel. Okay, and I think also just going back to the actual doing the podcast themselves, I think that's a little bit of a creative side of you, that it's a hobby that you... Yes, I, I did always want, I always was interested in radio. Um, it was a big part of my life. I would go to bed at night uh, with a transistor radio next to me, either listening to a ball game or listening to a talk show. Uh, my dad, my late father used to say that he didn't understand why I had to turn on the radio before I started the car every time it was not connected. Uh, so I always wanted to have my own radio show, and this was in the technology presented itself, so... This was, this was like a dream come true. Okay, and I think it also connects to you just being a terrific storyteller. You put together a blog book, which is a small example of the many stories you have. And just talking for you now for a few minutes, we get a feel of that. And like you said, you have a very strong memory. You'll often remind us of detailed stories and dates that don't relate to you directly that we can't even remember, so. Yes, I often share with my wife things that happened to her well before I met her that she has long forgotten, so. So where do you think this came from? It's such an integral part of your life and of who you are. First, I think it was God-given. It's just something genetic, but I also think, again, I go back to that I wasn't the best student and being able to remember things and connect things 
uh, helped me get through basically school, okay? In other words, it, it enabled me that maybe I wasn't the most prepared for a test or a task or a presentation, but the fact that I remembered things from the past, I, I can tell you one, one little quick story. I think I was in the seventh grade, and we were given an assignment. In the back in those days, there was a books with short stories in them, and you were given a, a fixed amount of time to read the stories, and then you had to write down the summary. The books were closed, and the teacher left the room. to make, She didn't want to be there, or she was called out, and when she came back, there was like total uh, bedlam going on. Kids were playing, and somehow she spotted me in the center of this, and she said, Mr. Stein, I assume you did not read any of the stories, and I assume you are not ready. And I said, no, actually, I am ready. And she said, let me see your story or write the story. You have now 10 minutes to write your summary. And I handed it in. And it was one of the stories from the book, except I had not read it. It was a character in one of the stories. It was actually about one of the founders of General Electric, my grandfather, who, who gave me a great deal of knowledge and education he shared with me, told me about this was someone that he had looked up to and read about. I remembered the guy's life story. She looked at the paper. She said, there's no way that you could possibly have read the story. But she says, I can't. This is an excellent summary. I don't know how you did it. So okay. Is, okay. It's a good story. So I've always been curious about the decision you made with your wife and my mother, Judy, to make that move to Israel. Was it something you always thought about separately or together, or was it more spontaneous? Well, there's a couple aspects. One is that I, w- I went to a Jewish school with a the rabbi, the head of the school, who was also the rabbi of our synagogue, was, was very Zionistic. He was from the Mizrahi movement. So the way he presented the birth of Israel and the uh, it was not an Israel that anything resembles of today, where it was still a, like in the United States, the Old West. It was, it was an early stage of development, but I think he made it very attractive in terms of what was happening there. So that was one influence. My, my father-in-law, who should live and be well, uh, often refers me back to a story that I told him that when I was maybe really young, uh, maybe single digits, ships from Israel on the Zim, the Zim uh, ocean liner, used to actually dock in a place called Calumet Harbor, which was not far from our house on the far south side of Chicago. And my grandfather would take my father and I on summer afternoons because you couldn't you couldn't sail to Chicago during the winter. The ice blocked access to Lake Michigan. So in the summer, these ships would come in and we would go on the ship. There was not security like there is today. And my grandfather would speak in Yiddish. These were probably people that were sailors, you know, who had left Europe after the war. And and he would bring a bottle of wine. He would say Kiddush for them. I was standing around with all these Israeli sailors. So I think that was very... I looked up to these people. And the final part to answer your question is that when I met your mother, uh, she had just come back from a year in Israel. Uh, she told me she was planning to make Aliyah. And if we were going to get married, that was a condition of the engagement and marriage that we would be making Aliyah. So I said, okay, I'm in. I'm in. I'm in. Okay. 
I'm happy you did that. <laughs> Were there many others in Israel in the U.S. tax accounting field back then, or was it an entrepreneurial idea? Uh, would you there, call yourself a startup? No, there, there, I mean, there were actually, I'd say for the most part, single practitioners. In those days, a lot of the American Olim came to, to Yerushalayim. That was the starting point. Ranana was a very small, almost uh, like a Moshav. The Gush Etzion didn't exist yet. Modin didn't exist. Beit Shemesh was a development town. So these single practitioners, I can probably number them on one hand, were based in, in Yerushalayim. And uh, I sort of said, if they can do it, I can do it. They were one, like I say, one-man practices. I think one of them is still practicing the others have either retired or not not with us anymore and uh, so I don't I don't I mean I didn't copy their model I didn't seek them out uh, for, for advice I, I had already sort of established the model in Chicago uh, it was very low tech no no PC uh, I bought a 220 those old-fashioned uh, calculators with a tape on it and in France on the way to Israel, which was our big investment. I think it cost me at the time uh, the equivalent of $100. For a, I think it was a Casio printer, um, uh, not a calculator with a tape. And that's how we started the business. So what is it that you enjoy most about your job? I really, to this day and always, has been the... We have a client who is one of my first one of the early clients. I think he, we started working with him in 1980. He's an expert in sales. And he said to me, the most important thing about a successful salesman is to make your clients your friends. And I think for me, the meeting the clients, developing the relationship, helping the clients, the interactions with the clients, have been what's kept me so excited about coming to work every day. I think uh, I have an opportunity to meet new people all the time. I have the opportunity to really meet young people all the time, young entrepreneurs. And uh, although there's a large age gap, I always feel it's very easy to connect. And I think that's also something that I, I learned as a, as a young person in the Midwest. I, I saw that how my grandfather did business. I saw my father who was in sales. He sold jewelry, uh, how he interacted with his customers. I just like connecting with people and staying connected to people, okay. and which, which is more challenging these days um, because the practice has gotten bigger and, and I don't have the bandwidth to be in touch with people as I would like to but that's I know that to really be true about you and how important the connections and personal relationships are and you have this with your family and friends with your clients with your employees and some have been together with you for many many years I feel like this is a deep deep within your core of the reason that you do things and have you have a nature that cares and is really interested in people and in so many different subjects. You're just such a curious person. And I think that for a leader of an organization, this is such a special and important trait. Is this how you've always been? Do you feel like this is something that you think about at all? I'm not sure if I think about it so consciously. I, I can tell you this, that I'm, I'm very fortunate. And I think this is, I, I wish this of all my listeners. One of the things that I think is so important to go through life is besides familial connections is to have friends. I'm fortunate to have one friend that we've basically been friends 
since meeting in just post-kindergarten. And at one point, our, our, we were bar mitzvah week apart, our birthdays were a week apart. We were involved in each other's weddings. Our families have remained close, even though he has remained in America and I live in Israel. But when, we were, when I was a junior in college, uh, he transferred to the University of Illinois, and I already had a roommate. I was in an apartment with two other guys, so I found him an apartment with two other fellows. But for our senior year, we decided to move in with each other. And people told me at that time, don't do that, okay? If you live with a friend, you won't be a friend again. So I think that I've always been sensitive from those days in order to maintain healthy relationships, you have to be sensitive to people's feelings, you have to listen to them, you have to be flexible. And so I think I've just taken those things that even way back then that I put to use to try to connect with my clients. Okay, I know also if we're talking in terms of leadership, you've always been so open-minded and a great listener and great with asking the right questions. And in the firm, you've created a very positive culture of sharing and communicating, which I know is key. What have been some of your important learnings as a leader in this aspect? I think the, the, pro- the most important thing that I've learned is that you have to give people opportunities to grow. I give a lot of autonomy uh, because I think just like I want to look forward to coming to work in the morning, I want my employees to be look, come to work to this morning. And one of the experiences, again, that I had uh, as a young person, even before I could legally work, which I got a work permit shortly before my 16th birthday, but I had worked for many years before that for my grandfather, who was in the wholesale egg and poultry business, is that I had a lot of jobs as a young person, and I had jobs that some I didn't enjoy being at, and I was looking at the clock, and I always wanted to work somewhere where I never looked at the clock, or the clock was sort of, I was racing against it, and that's the environment I've wanted to create for people, that they enjoy coming to work, they feel there's opportunities. One way of doing that is is letting people seek out areas where they feel naturally strong in, listening to them, changing. I think one of the things that I'm very proud of is that I was able to employ a lot of working mothers and give them the flexibility, even just at the really early stages. Now we think of it as a natural that you can work from home, but in the early years I used to actually take discs from the office in Beta Karim and deliver them to people's apartments so they could work on returns, physically bring files. But I thought that was very important to be able to mothers could could do their work, but I wanted there to be flexibility that they could do it according to their needs and their schedules. I know that to be true, and I know that's a core value and important for you to provide that opportunity for people to... We always talk about work-life balance so that people can have that. And I know it's important for you also personally. I know that you sometimes need the quiet and spiritual time just to get that inspiration and think of new ideas. So how do you, if I can ask, how you manage your personal work-life balance? Um, sometimes I don't manage it that well, but I have found that, um, as again, as a young person, I was attracted first to print media, be it newspapers, um, magazines, television, radio. I found those things gave me a lot of ideas. The, the downside of that is that 
I'm not able, I don't have the time to read books because I'm following so much, so many other things. Uh, I'm pretty excited. Just last week, Apple came out with a new application where you can have access to 300 popular magazines for, for $9.95 a month. So that's going to be, I already started reading some of this. I tried a free month subscription. But I think for me, I look for opportunities or those quiet moments where an idea can pop in my head. And then I just like to go over it and play with it and then put myself in a real life situation if it, that, it, that it works. And thank God it's been pretty successful. So it's not, there's no real disciplined methodology. Perhaps it would be if I had a more disciplined methodology. Maybe I could be more creative, but that's sort of how it works with me. Okay, so tell me a little bit about some of your other hobbies. Well, before I say, I'll add one other thing. Yeah. When I was interviewing for my first job after I did my bachelor's and got my CPA at the University of Illinois, and then I got an MBA at the University of Michigan, uh, where I met my future wife, um, when I was doing some interviewing for my first professional job, there was a firm at that time called Touche Ross. It eventually merged with Deloitte. It was called Deloitte Touche. Now it's just called Deloitte. But I went to this interview in Touche Ross. I got to the end of the day. If you were going to be made an offer, you got you were brought into one of the partner's offices. And this partner said to me, if you're going to be successful in this profession, you've got to be thinking about work 24-7, particularly when you're taking a shower. And I basically ran out of that place. I said, I am not going to be thinking about work when I'm taking a shower. But the truth is, he was right. In other words, you have your, your brain has to be open at all times of the day for those ideas to percolate, mm -hmm. get some stimulation to see something, to hear something, and say, wow, that, that could work. Uh, with my hobbies, I still follow sports a lot. I, I, yeah. you know, I, I, I um, like to say that uh, we start our traditional Jews start their morning prayers with the prayer Modani, and I used to say I started with Modani, the MLB, which is the, which is the abbreviation for Major League Baseball. Um, I'm still very much follow Chicago the, teams. Or the NBA playoffs, which you have NBA to wake up. Or the NBA playoffs, which I get up. I'm, I'm a avid Chicago Bear fan. I love the White Sox, even though they've only won the World Series once in my lifetime, which I'm very grateful for. Uh, I love music. I love the, the world of podcasts that have come along. Um, I've, I've always exercised the... Uh, the last couple of years, I've been a um, big advocate or user of the TRX method. I, I work out with two different young men who are, who are my madrichim, who really I've become friends with. I used to jog. I haven't done that in a while. And uh, I also found that I've been able to travel more at this point in my life with my wife. And I've been to some wonderful places that I never could imagine that I could could have gone to. Another hobby that you've picked up over the years that we can see here with your the photos in the office that we've blown up is that you have started to like photography and you're actually a good photographer. Thank you. And maybe you can, what is a favorite place or city that you visited recently that you can share? Um, wow, my, my late father who was sold jewelry one time a, a fellow came into his office and, and the guy was very, not his office, to the store, and he was very agitated and he was carrying a bag. And he said to my father, 
can I trade what can I trade something in for some jewelry or for a very inexpensive they also sold Kodak cameras and my father said well let's see what's in the bag and there was a camera called a Hasselblad which was considered uh, like the highest end of professional cameras it was even taken by Neil Armstrong to the moon the shots on the moon were taken with a Hasselblad and my father said this is a very valuable piece of equipment he said I don't want to see this thing this is all my uncle left me and my father took it and traded he used it but then he gave it to me so I used to walk when I was in college I used to some like on a Friday go out and take pictures and every time I'd go in for more film the different stores wanted to buy the camera for me so I did used to take pictures it sort of went by the by and now recently with the great technology that exists I, I've taken it back up I do very much enjoy it uh, where have I been cities I was recently in Santiago, Chile, which I thought was a really exciting place. Um, before that, last year I was in Shanghai. I had been there before, but I was able to, I was there during a nicer time of the year, and I really found it to be a very cool place that I would like to go back to again. Okay, so just going back one more time with uh, talking about some of the, your hobbies, I know you love technology. That is true. Can you tell us what your favorite gadget is, your techie gadget wow. is? Wow. Uh, of course, I guess my iPhone. Okay, my <laughs> iPhone is just, uh, you know, I even have now a program that monitors how many times I pick it up and it warns me. Um, it's everything, okay? It, mm -hmm. it's, it's my entertainment. It's my communication. It's how I talk to people. It measures... Uh, where I've been, it tells me how to get to somewhere. It was particularly when I was recently in South America and I was in a place that had no internet and no GPS. It was kind of strange to not be able to use my phone to help me get through these things. It tells me how to cook, uh, make dishes. I do, I do like to cook. I probably should do more of that. You're just telling me that there's a way now to get magazines, all yes, the magazines. Yes, now all the magazines and the iP uh, Apple News, it's called. Um, I recently, for Purim, made for the family some uh, Chicago deep dish pizzas with those recipes that are on, the, on my phone. I, I just uh, love that. I also, I'd say my other favorite gadget is that I have a, what's called a Fitbit watch. I love that. It, it tells me how many steps I've gone. And recently my, my staff gave me as a birthday present something called Google Home. And it's a lot of fun. My wife didn't want a device like that in the house where you're talking to a machine and not to a person. But she, you know, when I say, hey, Google, play Ella Fitzgerald, uh, which is music she loved, I think she's, she's coming to, to like that. And I actually showed her how to do her shopping list the other day where you can call in i'm missing i need some rice and i need some bread and i need some flour and then it goes on to your phone so okay sounds cool um so being a paperless office which we've been for many right. years was important to you before it became trendy where do you where did you come up with that again i i, I think i in my reading and i try to keep up with Keep up with new trends and maybe be experimental with which sometimes they work out and sometimes sometimes some things we've tried maybe it was a technology or an idea that wasn't really uh, viable we used I, I, I just find that the trend was to get more things 
over the internet. Clients were sending in data. We were printing returns now that we could save on the cloud. It wasn't even called the cloud. It was called the server in those days or on our PCs. I thought that even though it wasn't so popular in those days, that paper, I thought of all those trees getting cut down. And I think today being more green is, is, is important. Uh, I think it's essential, actually, when I think about my grandchildren, what kind of world I want them to be living in. And then it just evolved that once we sit in the paper, then we had to take on technologies of how to track all the data and all the returns. And then how we move from servers to clouds, how we communicate with each other internally, externally. That's all just stuff that makes, to me, uh, the only thing I really still like paper is and I and I think that's just because I'm old fashioned that I do still prefer to if I see an article uh, I'd like to print it out read it make notes I know you can do all of that online today but I'm still it's something I like to do so we know the business is very different today than it was 40 years ago and even 20 years ago and even less than even that. less yes so how do you think things have changed in the tax world over the years and how do you deal with all these changes and Where do you see the field going, let's say, in the next five to ten years? Well, I think, you know, the biggest is the digital revolution. And, and what I also always say to people, my clients, is the same uh, technology that enables you to do some of the things I spoke with, with your phone, with your computer, that is all so that the government authorities have that, that technology as well, if not more sophisticated technology. And things that were used to be on paper uh, are all digitized today. So I think the biggest change is that people, uh, their sense of privacy or the ability to decide on what they want to disclose, what they want to hide, if I can use such a term, uh, has really gone, it's, it's something, it's ancient, it's past. Um, the banks today, um, they only want customers who are tax compliant and, The governments have a lot of different ways of tracking uh, what you buy, where you've traveled. Uh, I had a client a few years ago that went into the U.S. on his green card, and the border control person at, at Kennedy Airport or, or Newark Airport said, we noticed that you flew recently from Tel Aviv to China via, Shanghai, via Istanbul on your Israeli passport. So we're so connected to... And I think people have to realize, and I think they've come to realize now that the name of the game, and I actually heard this in a lecture about 10 years ago, a professional conference, saying that compliance is going to become the most important thing. And I think that's that you have to really be compliant. You have to know the rules, the rules, even rules that have been around for a long time were sort of ignored because... The government couldn't get access to data individuals couldn't but those days are over so I think that's been the biggest change and of course the the speed that one has to respond uh, you know I, I remember I had a client years ago who was a retired lawyer in Chicago before he, he had moved to Israel and he said he couldn't operate in this environment today as a professional because his method of working was when a client would call and the client would say did you get the contract and Did you get my comments and no the mail it's, it's mail slow or they'd say did you where where's my uh, agreement that you said you were working on and he'd say well I mailed it yesterday and nothing was instantaneous there was no internet there were no faxes 
Um, today you have to respond. You know, clients want to hear from you. They want and to. And obviously, be, the trend is just going to be continued. Right, and you know, as you know, once upon a time, your work was left in the office when you closed the door in the early days of the practice. Today, it's it's while you're driving home. It's when you're mm-hmm. sitting in your kitchen, and I think that's one of the challenges that we all face. I do. Mm-hmm. What would you advise someone entering the tax field today? That's that's a good question. I think uh, you still have to get a good education to learn the basics. I think one of the things about the profession of taxation, particularly U.S. taxation, is you have to be committed to constantly learning. In other words, I think if someone was a very uh, talented, experienced person, five years ago, 10 years ago, two years ago, and said, you know what, that's it. I'm done learning new things. Uh, I think you you can't practice. I think you have to be extremely up-to-date, which I don't think applies to every profession, but in this profession, it really makes the difference of being able to, first of all, do the work correctly. Second of all, to save your clients money or not cost them extra money. And... Um, Really, I think you're negligent. So I think if, if someone's going into this, I mean, it sounds cliche, but lifetime learning yeah. and sharing. And, and the Internet is such a wonderful facility. When I first started practicing, that was one of the weaknesses of a single practitioner living in Israel was how did you keep up to date? Today, it's mm-hmm. anybody can do that. Okay, so before we end, I want to just ask you, what motivates you or who inspires you? Maybe what is the best piece of advice you've received? Wow, that's a hard <laughs> so, question. Yeah, um, um, you, you know, what inspires me? I've, you know, I've always liked movies and stories and television shows. I've always liked the good guy. I like the good guy to win. I like the bad guy to lose. <laughs> so if I can do something that takes care of a good a person uh, who has a good idea or is a good person... Uh, I, I'm always for the good guys. Okay. On the other hand, I also have always liked the underdog too. In other words, the people uh, who may be a little more disadvantaged than the regular to help them along, to give them a boost. I think those are the things that are inspiring me. So I always like stories and movies and and books about such things. Piece of advice you've received? Piece of advice? I don't know. I've, I've been fortunate to be around a lot of people, parents, grandparents, uh, friends, my children. I recently wrote a, a blog which will come out hopefully before Pesach about uh, the benefit of listening to your children. I think uh, we can learn from everyone. If there's one piece of advice, I think it was it was more a message that I received is to uh, treat people correctly, show respect, and you'll get you'll get back in return. And I, I think I've I've tried to f- follow that, and I think it's uh, paid off for me. Okay. Is there anything else you want to add? First of all, this was uh, very different for me. Um, a little longer podcast than <laughs> I normally do. Uh, this was not prearranged, and so uh, it was kind of fun to okay, be on the other right. end. I thank you for uh, coming up with this idea, and uh, it's almost a 40-minute podcast for a 40th <laughs> anniversary, which is, which is very appropriate. Okay. So uh, thank you very much. Thank you for doing this interview, and it was a great way for me to celebrate with you. And I'm looking forward to hearing the next interesting podcast coming up. 
If you have any questions for Philip, we will add them to the end of his next podcast. So please send us an email with your questions to info at peacetime.com. I hope you enjoyed our podcast. Feel free to visit us at www.peacetime.com or look for Philip Stein and Associates on Facebook and LinkedIn.